Hello and welcome back to Interpreting India. As the world looks to emerge from the shadow of the coronavirus pandemic, 2022 so far has been defined by precarious geopolitical relations, drastically shifting economic trends, and a rapidly evolving technological landscape. This season, we at Carnegie India are examining many of the challenges and opportunities that India will confront in the coming decade. I'm your host Deep Pal and this week we are discussing Australia and India's areas of convergence in the Indo-Pacific. The Indo-Pacific has emerged as a region of great significance. China is cementing its strategic presence in the region with a push toward financing infrastructure, announcements of alternative security and development mechanisms and security pacts, most recently with the Solomon Islands. Meanwhile, the United States remains preoccupied with its various priorities including the war in ukraine and a broader engagement with european security as regional dynamics continue to evolve actors like india and australia find themselves facing common concerns as well as opportunities that continue to converge in this episode of interpreting india we discuss the recent developments in the indo pacific what would be the contours of an indo pacific strategy that counteracts china's adventurism and influence in the region How can India and Australia strengthen their bilateral relationship by harnessing their national defense industrial bases? And how can the Quad countries become significant contributors to public security in the region? Joining us today to discuss this is Ashley Townshend, who is senior fellow for Indo-Pacific Security at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. He is also the founding co-chair of the annual US Australia Indo-Pacific Deterrence Dialogue and a non-resident senior fellow at the United States Studies Center at the University of Sydney. A leading Australian expert on Indo-Pacific strategic affairs, Ashley has written extensively on US strategy in Asia, regional strategic competition with China, the US Australia alliance and Australian foreign and defense policy. He is also the co-author of the monograph Averting Crisis American strategy, military spending and collective defense in the Indo-Pacific. Ashley, wonderful to have you for interpreting India. Welcome. Thanks, Steve. Great to be here. So, let's start with the conversations that you've had over the last week. You've been meeting people across India, uh people from the strategic community, the government, the military and so on and so forth. What would be your key takeaways? I think the the first point that really struck me is just how much the debate in India has solidified on China that is to say certainly in the last couple of years whereas uh, the, the 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 challenge that China presents in India both at the border but more broadly in the security domain is no longer something which is likely to fade away but is absolutely seen as front and center uh, of Indian defense and security policy thinking uh, one interlocutor said to me that it's no longer the case that India is primarily focused on the border with Pakistan it's absolutely China now as the number one um, competitor uh, and that of course is a competition that is operating in a context of neighboring countries that do need to also have a relationship but nonetheless that shift is clear the consolidation of that shift um you know since Galwan is clear and i think that's perhaps not necessarily understood um uh in in Canberra in Washington more broadly outside of those that work on the bilateral relationships with India just how fundamental and permanent the view uh, of China as a as a threat is now uh in the Indian debate i think this the second point that that really struck me is again you know the indian stance on us strategy and where the us 
sits in the Indo-Pacific. Um, just as there is concern in other parts of the region, again, in, in, in Australia, in, in Japan, in parts of Southeast Asia, concern about America's focus on the war in Ukraine and America's preoccupation with European security at the moment, um, that really came through strongly here in India. There's definitely a sense that the United States is distracted, both in a security sense because of its focus right now um, in Europe, but also more broadly in the sense of a building out a more well-rounded Indo-Pacific strategy in the economic and diplomatic technological domains in Asia as well. Now, of course, that's not to to downplay or to neglect things like um, the Indo-Pacific Economic Framework, which we can talk about later. So there are elements of that that are well understood and appreciated here. But by and large, there is a sense of concern that the United States is not only in, in relative decline, but is in relative distraction compared to where we hoped it would be after withdrawal from Afghanistan. And I think that the, the, the third point, and it sort of builds on that, is that there is an appetite here not just for greater U.S. presence, that's obvious if, if, if there is concern about Indian, uh, U.S. distraction, but there is an appetite here for greater presence and coordination with like-minded countries. So India's um, 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 you know, history, strategic culture of non-alignment is obviously still there, but within the context of strategic autonomy, the pursuit, the interest, the ambition for a range of bilateral and multilateral partnerships, including in the security domain, but not only, is now very much front and center. So it, to the point that it would really not be accurate in my view to say that India is a country that has a hard non-aligned position now. It has a non-alliance position, but it seems to have an increasing multi-aligned framework within the context of specific countries and specific functional areas of cooperation. That's really useful to know because um, when when we sitting in India talk about any of these approaches, uh, the question always is that if the message, how the message is being re received, right, on the, on the other end. So, let me take that question forward and, and see that now, now that this, these are your impressions uh, from the perspective of the Australian strategic community, uh, what does all of this add up to? Well, I think the, the first point there is that there is a great deal of convergence between India and Australia when it comes to the Indo-Pacific and what we want to achieve and what we're worried about. Um, those three points I mentioned at the beginning um, concern about China as a competitor and as a threat in the region, concern about U.S. distraction and its need to be more present in Asia in more ways, more often, more quickly. And the third point about the need to pursue multilateral and a, and a, and a large number of bilateral alignments in order to achieve our objectives, that's how Australia sees the world. Maybe go back to 2017 where Australia, uh, Australia launched its foreign policy white paper and it was really a white paper that placed these dynamics front and center. In, a, in an era of rising Chinese power and waning American influence, the solution to instability is not going to be found in U.S. unipolarity. It is only to be found in a collective regional balance. And the, the framework used in that white paper was to build a regional, a, a, a regional balance that is favorable to our interests. Uh, fast forward through to 2020 and Australia's um, uh, most recent uh, defense strategic update launched then, it really sharpened that in the security domain. It focused Australia's defense planning 
on the Indo-Pacific uh, rather than globally or just on the defense of Australia. And it basically um, um, uh, sketched out a policy wherein Australia would provide much more resources and, and play a far greater and more ambitious role in, in um, shaping uh, a strategic environment that is resilient to Chinese ambition and to Chinese influence to deterring at the high end of, of the warfighting spectrum, but also at the low end in, in the conventional sense to deterring Chinese adventurism, both independently with, the, with and through the U.S. alliance, but importantly with and through a plurality of regional partnerships, including the Quad and other things, and then also to be able to respond in the event of a crisis with regional partners. And in all of this, Australia seeks to really be a partner of choice with the Quad countries and also with key Southeast Asian partners as a provider of and a contributor to security, a security in defense of the regional order, not just a narrow sense of the defense of Australia. That mindset to me, um, that Australian strategy for the region to me seems to align very neatly with how India wants to see the development of geopolitical trends in the region. It seems to me that with the, the sort of three with the concerns that India faces at the border in the region, including in the maritime space, across domains from the security, um, uh, from security challenges through to geoeconomic and, and geotechnology challenges, through to the challenges of development and infrastructure financing in the region that, that India is looking for and has a great appetite for um, um, ambitious um, involvement by countries that share its in, that share its values, that share its interests, rather in in this in this regard, and I think there's, there seems to me to be great appetite to do more on the Australia India leg of providing that kind of ballast to and 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 pillar of order in the region. Right, you talked about the Quad and 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 uh, about uh, uh, multipolarity, and we'll come to that in a second. But I was wondering about you know the kind of uh, strategic geoeconomic changes that India has seen in the in in its near neighborhood, right? Uh, Australia has seen similar things happening. Whether one talks about the islands, whether one talks about ASEAN, right? With that in view, right? Um, uh, what what are the uh, clear challenges moving ahead for Australia? The clear challenges for Australia right now are, I think, to be able to do multiple things at once. So the, the last Australian government had a Pacific step up. It resourced its its um, Pacific step up fairly substantially on the domestic side, but clearly not to the point that it was able to prevent or at least complicate the efforts by China to really build Chinese influence in parts of the Pacific. And of course, um, the security agreement between the Chinese government and Solomon Islands government earlier this year really highlighted just how far uh, or the endpoint or, or a way station even of Chinese influence in the Pacific and just how far things had had moved in that direction in certain Pacific Island countries. And of course, it's not only limited to the Solomon Islands. There is indeed um, 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 a, a pursuit of influence and of presence, political, geopolitical, economic, but also strategic um, in the Pacific by China. We've seen in a range of countries in that region. So, I think for Australia, there is a need to step up further that effort and, and, and do so in ways that are clearly going to be more effective than they have been to date, but do so in a way that doesn't preoccupy the rest 
um, the, the larger horizon, the broader picture of Australia's investment in Indo-Pacific security. Uh, the new Albanese government has prioritised Southeast Asia and wants to see a similar kind of step up in Southeast Asia diplomatically in terms of our economic policy, in terms of our security policy. You've seen the Foreign Minister Penny Wong really invest both in the Pacific and in Southeast Asia, her time and efforts so far to try and bring that to the forefront of Australian uh, foreign policy. That's also critical because Australian defence policy views uh, the Southeast Asian littoral as really um, one of, one of the front lines for Australia's security and Australia's influence. If we do want, if we do believe, as I think we should, that Australian security is really only uh, ensured in a region that is stable in a regional order, that is healthy and stable and resilient where states have sovereign autonomy, where they can defend uh, their territorial integrity, their maritime waters and so forth, and do so with the help of others, then we do need to invest in that region. And we can't only invest in the security sense. So there's a recalibration going when it comes to the prioritization of Southeast Asia. So that's the second thing we have to do at once. And then we also need to balance this kind of investment in statecraft and defence policy in the region with our alliance management and our management of major power defence cooperation and strategic cooperation with the United States, Japan and with India. So the US alliance, the, the strategic partnerships with Japan and India as well and the quad as a collective. And different tools are required for each of those, each of those um, 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 uh, partnerships um, and it's very easy for a country which is a small country and a small bureaucracy to privilege some over others when in fact what Australia needs is investment in all three of those levels, if you like, of Australian statecraft at once. All of this, as we were talking earlier, right, have to happen at a time when there are a number of other developments that are happening, right? So, so as, as we were talking earlier, the necessity is to be able to walk and chew gum as well. And that is somewhere you were saying that there has been a commonality in the way Australia sees how uh, geopolitical, geoeconomic and strategic developments are happening and how uh, India also sees them. Yeah, that's right. I think in, in you know, a, a very clear commonality for me is the conversations that we've had uh, this week with Indian uh, security thinkers on multidimensional uh, security, on thinking about multidimensional national security challenges, multidimensional deterrence, integrated deterrence, to use the, uh, the Biden administration's term. Um, Australia has also been uh, pursuing for some time now a much more integrated whole of government, whole of society approach uh, to the challenges in the Indo-Pacific. Um, you know, some of that is is expressed and is 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 um, is is undertaken on the home front through counter foreign interference legislation, through counter espionage legislation, through uh, the strengthening of controls on inbound um, finance uh, by China in Australia on critical sectors, and so on and so forth. Part of that is also in the way we engage and work with regional countries, let's say, in Southeast Asia to build up their cyber resilience, to build up their own counter-foreign interference or their own um, counter-disinformation competencies and so on and so forth. Um, this, the, the struggle that plays out for influence in those spaces, the struggle that plays out for, for influence in the region in the economic space with you know, rising stocks of Chinese Rather rising flows, rather of Chinese um, investment 
in the region as a whole, the major provision of infrastructure financing, the delivery of infrastructure projects, be they white elephant, be they critical, depending on the on the project in the region, buys China influence and is something which Australia, Japan, India, the United States in different configurations have tried to combat. But the way that these different kinds of influence and um, 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 shaping activities by China build the groundwork for military strategic influence or the denial of military strategic influence to us is well appreciated in Australia. It seems to be well appreciated in India and there certainly seems to be an appetite for working with countries like Australia on certain elements of this where we have been, both of us, on, on the front lines of some of the pointier um, um, actions by China in recent years, let's say economic uh, statecraft or economic coercion that both of our countries have experienced or Chinese-led disinformation, there is a willingness to learn lessons and to inform others about best practices that comes through. So if we, if we take that a little further, right, I mean, Australia, India, or even other regional players, right, um, if we do look at um, China's increasing spread in the region, uh, we are talking about a player that has far higher capacity and even as uh, actors like India, like Australia or anyone else are trying to get there, there is definitely a lag, right? Um, how do you see these countries dealing with, with the fact that uh, in the coming decade, uh, China may actually be in terms of geoeconomic aspects or political aspects or strategic aspects, uh, manage to put other players behind. There, there would need to be a coming together of these players, but uh, there would also this this would also possibly be the time when China would look at moving ahead uh, with some of its objectives, with some of its much said goals, and and all of the rest of the players will have to figure out how to contend with those. Yeah. So I, I mean, two points. Two points to that. N- number one, I, I I think you know at a high level. Um, it, it's, it's clearly the case that we can't counteract or deal with the consequences of Chinese um, influence of Chinese presence if we act alone. Um, collective action is, should be synonymous with Indo-Pacific strategy. No country's destiny in the region can be shaped by themselves alone. I think that's well understood. But what that means is that in very practical ways, uh, countries that have shared interests, that have substantial, if not perfectly overlapping interests, need uh, need to work together on a range of fronts. This characterizes multipolar systems as well. Um, you know, the, the Indo-Pacific is not, the, the, the struggle that we are seeing is not um, between China and the United States alone. It's between China and a range of countries. And the US is a factor in this. India is a factor. Japan is a factor, Australia and so forth. It's very messy, but the alignments and the coalitions that can be built around responding to, shaping and counteracting the elements of Chinese behavior that are most corrosive to order or to stability or to um, you know principles like sovereignty that we want to see maintained in the region, that is the, the form of those, of those efforts will, will be different, but the objective will be common. I think there's also a point here about about timelines that's worth bringing in. Um, you know, one thing that struck me, um, one thing that strikes me about the debate in Australia and the US and in India, say, about 
um, defense policy, about strategic policy, and about the challenge that China presents, is that timelines are absolutely front and center to those discussions right now. And I think the war in Ukraine has put that into even sharper relief. Um, by this, I mean, you know, in the United States, it's a, it's a very common narrative. Not everyone believes this, but it's a very common assessment, really, that um, between now and the end of this decade, the Chinese military will be at its greatest level of preparedness for undertaking a Taiwan-style contingency or even another contingency in the region, and the U.S. will be at its lowest point of preparedness to deal with that so that we really have a fairly short-term window to prepare ourselves as best we can to deal with what is likely to be an asymmetry in our ability to defend or to respond to a potential um, 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 act of Chinese aggression, and that in fact we need to do so in order to dis- to deter it. Um, I think in India there is a sense that well, on the on the India-China border front, we're here; it's arrived. The tensions have happened. The confrontations have happened. That if well managed and if and if de-escalated, India can hide and bide. It can it can buy some time over the next ten years to invest in the kind of force structure, in the kind of defense industrial base, in the kind of military and strategic policy settings, domestically in the main, but also with with alignment partners in order to be better able to, to deal with that in the future. That it's not yet urgent. The tensions on the border are immediate, but the broader challenge and the likelihood for this to get out of control even um, um, the time is still a little bit on India's side. So there's a difference there. And then in Australia's sense, Australia being a country that has no disputed border, no disputed maritime boundary, and, and with, with relatively secure strategic geography, um, but nonetheless talks about the end of strategic warning time. And, and for Australia, what that means is that whereas we'd previously um, based our defence planning around um, 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 an assumption that we would have at least a decade uh, of planning time um, to prepare for a direct attack on Australia or on Australian interests in the region and to respond, including by maintaining our military technological edge in ways that would then prevent that, uh, that, that challenge from materialising, that's gone out the window. We no longer believe we have a 10-year strategic warning time. So if you look at the, these, these three countries, I think you have... Um, 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 a, a bit of a difference between the extent to which India feels it can buy time and the extent to which in the Western Pacific, and I think Japan shares this too in Taiwan, that in fact time is running out. And so that does pose some um, challenges for the way that we cohere in terms of strategic and defense policy action. But I think the general um, um necessity of preparing ahead of time and of doing so now is common amongst all of those those countries. That's that's really interesting. And before we get onto the quad, um, I wanted to talk a little bit about the India-Australia bilateral relationship, the defense relationship more specifically, um, and the direction that that you have uh, seen it take, uh, especially given, as you mentioned, there are a number of commonalities in the challenges that the two countries face. Right. So I think, I mean, the the bilateral defense relationship between India and Australia has really been a a success story um, of of recent years and in in many ways is the the anchor 
of the major uptick in bilateral relations between our two countries in recent years. Um, obviously, going back to 2020, India and Australia inked a comprehensive strategic partnership, which has brought both of our countries across the board, but in, in the realm of defense and defense industry explicitly closer together. And some of the, some of the dividends of work that's been going on you know, for a decade now in bringing India and Australia um, um, closer together as maritime, like-minded maritime partners in the region have, have and can now be um, appreciated. Um, earlier this year, for the very first time, we had reciprocal um, P-8, uh, you know, anti-submarine warfare aircraft visits and operations in each of our countries. Indian P-8 was in Australia undertaking patrols and anti-submarine warfare drills off northern Australia. And the same thing then took place with an Australian um, P-8 uh, visiting India and doing similarly in the Bay of Bengal. Our two countries hold now an annual um, maritime uh, exercise, um, Ozindex, which is uh, basically geared around high-end maritime security, high-end anti-submarine warfare drills and the like. Again, moving ahead in leaps and bounds from where it was even five years ago. And in terms of the kind of agreements, there are more examples. We could talk about this for a while, but in terms of the kind of agreements that underpin it, you've seen those start to fall in place as well. There is still an ongoing push to formalize um, um, an information um, and intelligence sharing arrangement, but we are nonetheless able to do that in certain ways at the moment. There's also um, the mutual logistics support agreement between our two countries that provides for a greater depth in, in operating in each other's strategic environments, as well as providing support to each other in an operational sense. Um, and I think you've also seen most recently a re, um, uh, a bit of a, reset and a reprioritization of uh, of a bilateral defense industrial um, part to the to the defense relationship as well it's not the easiest part it's certainly something which I think all countries in the region um, find difficult to do because defense industrial cooperation is a is a very uh, it's a very sensitive area and it's an area where a lot of industrial and trade policy restrictions are often in place but i think there is a clear commitment by both countries both by the way which are looking to strengthen their own national defense industrial bases we talk about sovereign capabilities in australia we're looking to build precision guided weapons in australia with australian industry content because we recognize that these are critical and that we can't rely on global stocks India is pushing to indigenize its defense industrial base. It's looking to be to make in India a lot of its um, high end and and new and emerging technologies, as well as existing legacy platforms. By the way, and it's also looking to find new ways and learn the lessons from what's happened in in Europe and the United States when it comes to harnessing defense tech startups and leveraging you know the competitive advantage that, in, that India can have when it comes to some of the non-defense technology sector and applying it to the defense space. So if we can bring this similar, if not entirely, you know, if not entirely the same, but similar instinct together between India and Australia and find ways to work together as defense industrial partners, I think that that would be another real boon to the bilateral defense relationship, but also the bilateral relationship as a whole, because defense industrial innovation and collaboration drive downstream benefits in other areas as well. Right. And actually, you know, something that strikes me as we talk about uh, the India-Australia bilateral relationship, but also the bilateral relationships within quad countries, 
right? It, it somehow seems like there is a lot more happening or there is a lot more appetite for a lot more, there is appetite for a lot more to happen bilaterally uh, than maybe in the quad, right? Where um, there has, there, there has been strategic potential, but there has also been uh, some sort of a reluctance to really push the envelope. Uh, so from Australia's perspective, what, what, how far can the Quad uh, really go um, beyond in, in providing uh, uh, public security goods, but going beyond that? So a few points on the Quad. First, I, I, I think you're right that uh, the Quad needs to occupy a space where it is perceived by the region as a major contributor to public security or to public goods generally defined. And that's the space that it currently occupies. But at the same time, there is a recognition by the Quad countries that it also needs to advance a security agenda as well. And that this is also integral to the way that order in Asia will be preserved amongst like-minded partners as China's ambition and assertiveness arises. But of course, the Quad itself is not always going to be, or in most cases, hasn't been the best vehicle to advance that latter goal. That latter goal has been a product of the aggregate of the bilaterals that underpin the quad rather than quad priorities um, themselves, with the exception of um, some elements of maritime domain awareness and maritime security in the non-traditional security front that are already on the quad agenda. Um, But in order to move forward, I do think it's critical that the quad has a clear sense of how it will chart a stronger maritime security and defense cooperation agenda um, 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 over the coming decade. I don't think it needs to be marketed or branded as a quad initiative. I certainly don't think we should have any more quad working groups. We have plenty already. What the quad needs to do is have an understanding of what kind of bilateral and trilateral um, 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 arrangements enabling agreements, exercises, operational priorities and so forth are needed and reforms critically across a whole range of areas from maritime domain awareness and anti-submarine warfare to choke point security um, and, uh, and, and, uh, and, and defense industrial cooperation. We need to harmonize our approaches to these things within the bilateral and trilateral relationships that underpin the quad so that we can stitch them together when we need to. Um, I do think that there is more ambition in the Australia-India bilateral than there can be right now within the quadrilateral when it comes to advancing maritime security. So, for example, India and Australia are already, as we discussed a moment ago, undertaking annual maritime drills. They're undertaking integrated drills that combine not just maritime forces but air forces as well. They're undertaking reciprocal P-8 visits. This has an anti-submarine warfare component. It has a maritime domain awareness component. But we're also both worried about the um, security of our sea lines of communication, of that part of the Northeast Indian Ocean that extends into into, um, the Southeast Asian littoral, where Chinese flotillas, Chinese submarines, Chinese commercial vessels gain access to the Indian Ocean and onwards to the Persian Gulf. And both of our countries have an interest in working with Southeast Asian partners to be better able to know what's going on in that part of the region, uh, track and, 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 and follow 
um, Chinese naval vessels in that part of the region and undertake choke point security drills and operate choke point security measures if need be in, in the event of a regional crisis. This is integral to the direct maritime security interests of Australia and India. And, you know, for my book, this should be where the Australia-India bilateral is going. Now, that can be plugged in in, in other fora, again, without the branding of the quad, when it comes to the way that um, the US and Japan or the US, Japan and Australia undertake uh, um, um, choke point security or archipelagic defense or island chain defense in parts of the Western Pacific. These are similar objectives, similar operational requirements. We will not necessarily ever be involved in an operation where all four quad countries will be delivering this effect as, as a group. But certainly we want to be in a place amongst us in time where for reasons of capacity, of political will, of of whatever, we can plug and play across the quad uh, air crews, you know, maritime assets, ISR, et cetera, and bring together a coherent package to provide a coherent effect in the region. We do need to be able to do this in time. And I do think the quad needs to have this, this mindset lodged beneath the bilaterals and lodged beneath the other good things that it's doing in the region. Perhaps that that is the most effective way of looking at the quad, right? A, a kind of an arrangement where these various other initiatives can, as you said, plug and play. And that is where my next question comes in. Um, where does AUKUS fit in in all of this? If, if we can talk a little bit about that. And it's just a little over a year, I think, since AUKUS has, has been announced. Um, so with that in mind, uh, is it turning out to be all that Australia hoped and wished and needed it to be? And, and how does that fit in? So in terms of, of, of where it fits in, um, firstly, it doesn't really fit in to the conversation we've just had because AUKUS is not an alliance. It's not an alignment. It's not about defense or strategic policy coordination or effects, or it's not about being operationalized in the region. It's a defense industrial initiative. It's, it's a procurement um, arrangement, or it will be a procurement arrangement for an Australian nuclear-powered submarine, and it will also be a set of arrangements to enable greater collaboration between the three AUKUS countries on emerging capabilities. It is in the same domain as the Australia-India defence industrial cooperation conversation, but obviously at a completely different level because of the Five Eyes relationship and the kind of technology that we're looking at. But other than that, it really doesn't connect to our conversation about regional alignments, about what we want to do in the region, about policy, because that's not really what AUKUS is about. And I think there's still a lot of misperception about that. Um, but when it comes to you know your second question, how's it going? Um, I think it did have its second birthday this week. There were some things to celebrate. Um, there's been a major overhaul, for example, in the Australian bureaucracy. Really, we're talking about hundreds of people that have been reorganized in different parts of our system to deliver on the AUKUS agenda. Um, we've seen similar fairly substantial institutional and bureaucratic reforms in the US and in Britain in order to, uh, to deliver uh, on their side of the AUKUS equation as well. So that is, that is progress. Um, the submarine arrangement is being, um, 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 you know, the pilot is, un- is the, the study is being undertaken at the moment and we won't really know much about that until March. I won't comment further about the submarine deal, but on the emerging capabilities side, I don't think we have much progress to show for 12 months. What I think Australia um, hoped 
is that we would have seen much more of an urgent move towards um, the kinds of export control, ITAR, and um, and um, you know tech transfer reforms, regulation reforms that are needed to really enable a seamless two-way integration between US and Australian and British defence industrial bases. And we've been here before. In 2017, the United States, um, Britain and Australia came together in an expansion of the US national technology and industrial base. And that really should have provided the kind of integration of Australian and British um, you know, um, industry into the US defence industrial base that AUKUS is now trying to achieve. That project failed because really the cultural barriers to doing that in the US just couldn't be broken down. So AUKUS is a second bite at the cherry in that regard. And I don't think we've seen a whole lot of progress on that front yet, although it is, it is comforting that everyone now understands the problem in the same way. We still haven't gone the extra mile to solving it. And then the other part that I think we still haven't cracked in AUKUS but you know, will take a bit longer than twelve months. Is really the way that we seek and and the, the way that we determine uh, capability priorities that we will seek as a group. Um, now, AUKUS has uh, seven working groups on emerging technologies that are now in force, and each of those are domains that matter: artificial intelligence, quantum, hypersonics, etc. Um, but with one or two exceptions. They're domains of R and D. They're not domains. Um, they're not. They're not capability priorities that can be fielded even in even in a ten year horizon. Now we are looking to show some proof of concept with certain elements of that agenda. Un- unmanned autonomous vehicles is one. In the next twelve to eighteen months, that will be positive. But I think the jury is still out as to whether AUKUS is going to be able to reform export controls quick enough and select capabilities that can be can make a difference operationally in the region quick enough yeah. um, and to do so um, um, uh, in the next you know, five years better than some of the other kinds of initiatives that the US, Britain and Australia are pursuing. And by those other kinds of initiatives, what I'm really referring to are um, new and I think quite exciting partnerships between um, private sector and, and militaries, say in the Australian context, between Andrew and the Royal Australian Navy to build an underwater autonomous vehicle in ways that circumvent a lot of the baggage and the red tape and the regulations that still exist that AUKUS is trying to break. Um, you can try and wade through it or you can work around it. We'll see which of those approaches works best. All right. Uh, on that note, Ashley, thank you so much for joining us on Interpreting India. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, Deep. Thank you very much. We will be back in two weeks with a new episode. To make sure you don't miss it, be sure to subscribe to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher or wherever you get your podcasts from. To learn more about our research and team, you can visit us at carnegieindia.org. You can also find us on social media on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. Thank you for listening and see you next time.